are Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, and 11 through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed that fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because your brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of our Lord. Oh, speed preaching time. <clears throat> time is running short. Uh, we could do a whole series on this text, and I've got a minute and 30 seconds. So... C.S. Lewis, uh, not C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot uh, once said that, wrote that the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive at the place where we started and to know it for the first 
time. The parable of the prodigal son is one of the most beloved of all Jesus' parables. It's important to understand the context, so I'm going to give just 30 seconds on the context. At the beginning of chapter 15 of Luke, um, Luke tells us that the Pharisees and scribes were complaining about Jesus. Imagine that. Um, This time they were saying this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus doesn't respond by saying something like, well, you know, sinner is such a harsh word. Instead, he responds by telling these righteous people three consecutive parables. The first one is about a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep uh, unattended out in the wilderness and he goes and finds the one lost sheep. What kind of a shepherd would do this? And then upon finding it, he says, rejoice with me for I have found the lost. The next one is about a woman who has 10 coins, nine of them she still has, but she's lost one of them. So she tears her house apart, looks under the sofa, behind the refrigerator, they had those in those days, and uh, and upon finding the coin, she says, rejoice with me for I have found my lost coin. After both of these stories, Jesus says that even heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Then he tells the third parable. A man has two sons. The younger one, it's always the younger one, asks for the father's, for his inheritance uh, right now. See, if you had two sons in the ancient Near East, when you died, your estate would be divided two-thirds to the elder and one-third to the younger. And that's because the rule of thumb was that the oldest got a double portion of what all the other children got. So if you only had two, then the eldest would get two-thirds and the youngest would get one-third. Of course, that wouldn't happen until the father dies. And so when the son comes and asks the father for his share of the estate, his share of the inheritance right now, the hearers, the original hearers would have been astounded by this. No kid would ever do such a thing. Why? Well, Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar who understands the history and culture of the time, he put it like this, to ask for the inheritance while the father was still alive is to wish him dead. But even more unheard of than the son's request is the father's response. Bailey goes on to say a traditional Middle Eastern father could only be expected to respond in one way. He would be expected to drive the boy out of the house with verbal if not physical and violent blows. But this father doesn't do that. Again, the hearers would be saying, what? So what does it say? He divides the property between them. The word for property in the Greek is the word bios, and it's where we get our word for biology. Another way of translating it literally could be to say that he divided his life between them. And you might say, well, it was just his possessions. Why would it be his whole life? He's just dividing his possessions. Well, that's because we typically don't understand the relationship that ancient people had with their land. This man's estate was his land. The father's estate was his land. His wealth was his land. He would have had to sell off one-third of his land 
to give his son that part of the estate. And in those days, their very identity was wrapped up in their land. To lose your land was to lose yourself. And to lose your land was to lose your standing in the community, which was tied up with your land. This son son is asking his father to tear his life apart. And the crazy thing is, is that the father does. The hearers have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond in such a way. And what the father is doing here is he is enduring the worst thing a human being could possibly endure. Rejected love. Rejected love. And so the boy liquidates his assets and he heads off for a distant country. It's interesting that the parable doesn't locate this distant country. It doesn't tell us where the boy went. Did he go to the land of Moab? Did he go to Las Vegas? We don't really know exactly where he went. And that's because the sole purpose of the distant country is to get away from home. And so it doesn't really matter where you go. The point is to leave home. The prodigal son fled to a place where he was free from life at home. He was no longer known as his father's other son, no longer restricted by the rules and morality of the father. And so he used his freedom to squander his birthright in dissolute living. That's Luke's sanitized term. The elder brother said he wasted it all on prostitutes, which sounds like an elder brother. Regardless, they both made it clear that the kid had spent all that he had. And again, that's because the distant country isn't valued for what it is. It's only valued for what it is not. It is the place where you can be someone other than who you are, where you can try on other identities for size. And eventually, we all run out. We, we run out of pleasure or money like this prodigal if he's seeking pleasure he runs out of money we run out of jobs we run out of spouses or houses or resumes or health or new ideas for self-improvement and then we just feel spent Luke writes when he had spent everything a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating. He would have eaten the same thing that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. Pigs? What is a good Jewish boy doing in a pigsty feeding pigs? Worse yet, eating like a pig. Well, when you've left home and you've forgotten who you are, you will always be amazed at the things you will find yourself doing in a distant country. Luke continues, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I love this. When he came to himself, he remembered the father's house at the same time. Those two things always happen at the same time. We remember the father's house and then we remember who we are. This is so important. Your real father's house has nothing to do with where you actually grew up or where you live right now. It has everything to do with your heavenly father who's waiting for you to come home to him, to return your heart to God where it belongs. God is the only one who establishes our identity. He gives it to us. 
Neither your success nor your failures are at the core of who you are. The core of your identity is determined by the Holy Spirit who in your baptism has adopted you into the Son's relationship with the Father. So what does that mean? You're the beloved of God. That's who you are. That's your core identity. This was the home that we left so long ago when we left the garden. And we wonder if we are actually the beloved. And in that doubt, in that wondering, we are tempted to throw ourselves into so many plans and strategies for satisfaction and for happiness that will just leave us in a distant country of disappointment and loneliness and despair. But somewhere along the way in our journey, those places usually after we're spent, the Holy Spirit brings us a memory of the Father's house. That place where you don't have to earn love. That place where you are safe and you belong just as you are. And when that happens, you come to your senses or you come to yourself, as the text says. You see what you're doing and you exclaim, this isn't me. I've been slopping pigs for too long. I'm started to act like a pig. Well, the gospel says, and if you remember nothing else, you're not a pig. You don't have to grab at life. It has already been given as a blessed inheritance. The only thing we have to do is return home in order to enjoy it. So the prodigal knows that he has made huge mistakes in the distant country. He doesn't deserve to have this place in his father's house, and, but yet he's hungry and there's nowhere else for him to go. And this memory of the father's house is going to continue to haunt him in the rest of, for the rest of his days. And so he decides to turn back. He crafts a, a, a restitution plan and starts writing it down. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one one of your hired hands. I imagine him memorizing this and repeating it on his way back. Now, to ask to be one of the hired hands is not the same thing as asking to be a slave. A slave worked in the estate, lived in the estate, but a hired man, a hired hand, was a craftsman. They lived in town. They had to be apprenticed to earn a trade, to learn a trade, and therefore to make a wage. Most commentators think that what this young man was doing is very simple. In those days, the rabbis taught that when you violated community expectations, you not only had to make an apology, but you also had to make restitution. And this boy was saying, I know that I am no longer worthy to be part of your family. I have given that up. I have, uh, I'm, I'm not worthy to be your family. But at least if I could start working, I could maybe pay you back a little bit of what I have done to you. So he has a plan. But while he was still far off, the father saw him. I love that line. I can relate to that line. While he was still far off, his father saw him. How many days had the father wandered down that road that led away from home? How often did he linger at the gate wondering the son would come home? How often did he look up from the fields and gaze across the horizon wondering if he might see his son coming home? 
Many commentators have suggested that this father doesn't act like a father in this case. He runs down to the son to greet this son, wrap him in his embrace and total emotional abandonment and kisses him. He doesn't act like a father. He acts like a mother in this instance. Middle Eastern fathers didn't act like this. They didn't run. Women run. So he runs to his son. The son tries to roll out the restitution plan. He gets out his piece of paper and says, Dad, I've got a plan. He starts to roll it out. And the father does what? He grabs it, throws it on the ground, and he says, I don't, I'm not interested in your restitution plan. Put the best robe on my son. What's the best robe? The best robe was the father's robe. And what he's saying is, I'm not going to wait for you to clean yourself up. I'm not going to... I'm not going to wait for you to pay me back. I'm not going to wait for you to even take a bath, even though you smell like pigs. I'm certainly not going to wait for you to prove yourself. He says to his servants, cover my son, his nakedness and his rags with the, with the robe of my office. It's the same robe he gives to you at your baptism. And we're going to have a feast. You're not going to earn your way back into this family. I'm bringing you back. And then we hear the words, Rejoice, rejoice with me, for I've found the lost. I've shared this um, painting before. This is Rembrandt's famous uh, Return of the Prodigal Son, and Henry Nouwen has written a book with that title on it. You can see the drama in this painting. You see the, the son in his rags, one shoe half torn off, turned away in shame and repentance. The elder son from a lofty position, gazes down on his younger son, sort of gazing down upon him, through him, not really attached to him, a few onlookers. The father is exhausted yet relieved. Notice the two hands of the father. One is masculine, one is feminine. Henry Nouwen writes, as soon as I recognized the difference between the two hands of the father, a new world of meaning opened up for me. The father is not simply a great patriarch. He's mother as well as father. He touches the son with a masculine hand and a feminine hand. He holds, she caresses, he confirms, she consoles. He is indeed God in whom both fatherhood and motherhood are present fully. That gentle and caressing right hand echoes for me now and says the words of the prophet Isaiah. Can a woman forget her baby at the breast, feel no pity for the child she has born? Even if these were to forget, I shall not forget you. Look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God has engraved you on the palms of his hands. This is what happens every time we come to worship. We usually come and confessing our sins or perhaps imagining the deals that we're going to make with God when we come out of this place in an hour, an hour and a half. But then the Holy Spirit at some point interrupts that to say, heaven is just rejoicing because you've come home. Remember the celebration, it wasn't, it wasn't the prodigal's idea. It was the father's idea. We're often embarrassed by the grace that we receive when we come home. But it doesn't matter. The Father is rejoicing and commands rejoicing. 
Now the elder brother, I'll give two minutes on him. He's usually really good at obeying commands, right? That's kind of what he's known for. But he's not really good at obeying this command, the command to rejoice. He's placed in the story to represent the Pharisees and the scribes who refuse to enter heaven's celebration over the return of sinners because it just isn't fair. And that's kind of the point of grace. It just isn't fair. But when the father comes to his pouting eldest son, he doesn't try to justify the younger brother. He doesn't say, well, you know, give him a break. He's been through a lot, you know. He just simply reminds him of the relationships. First, a very tender word to the elder brother. He says, my son. Like, don't forget, you're my son. And then to remind him of the brother who he's trying to get out of the relationship by the elder brother saying to his father, this is your son. The father reminds him by saying, your brother. Remember your brother. Then the father reminds the responsible eldest son that he's always been home. All that is mine is yours. It's always been yours. But the eldest who never left home was actually never at home in the first place because he had been trying to earn what had already been given to him. Here's the point. No distant country is as distant to the father as the land of pride. No distant country is as distant to the father as the land of pride. Finally, the father invites the eldest son to come into this place of rejoicing. Come to the place where love isn't earned, but it's given away. Come to the place where those who are lost in the sins of immorality and greed are joined to those lost in the even more dangerous sins of hubris and pride. Come to the place where you're home and where the grace is always extravagant. And as we're at the edge of our seats, wondering how this whole thing is going to wrap up, will this family come together in unity and reconciliation and love and live happily ever after? Jesus does what? He ends the parable. It's a total cliffhanger, which is a good indication for us to consider how we might write those final lines with our own lives. What will the choices that we make Will we enter into the celebration of heaven? But before we write those lines, we've got to remember that the point of the parable is not to be right or to be careful or to do a good job with life. The point of the parable is to come home to the Father's arms. And you can only get there by grace. This is what we're about at Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church Everything from the nursery up to senior care and everything in between, all of our Bible studies, our words and deeds, everything is about this message, that you are the beloved of God and nothing could ever replace that. Nothing could ever take that away. And so this identity that's given to you by God, he just wants us to come home so that we can remember who we are and whose we are. Let's pray. Gracious Father, some of us have a hard time finding home because we're blinded by our own sins. 
And others of us have a hard time finding home because we're blinded by our careful resolve. So give us all the vision of your Holy Spirit to see that home is always as close as your own outstretched arms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.